Well, good morning, and let me add my word of welcome to Gospel City Church. My name is Tyler Holder, and I am our pastor of men's and young adult discipleship. And let me encourage you, if you have a copy of God's Word, I'd love your eyes to be on Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24 is where we're going to be camping out this morning. Um, I was just sitting over there thinking, you know what? I might sign up for that camp prize pack. VIP seating? To me, that probably is like a nice camp chair. I'm hoping it's a leather couch um, or something like that. So Pastor Brent, uh, the ante has been raised, and I don't know if that's what it'll be, but I hope it is. So anyway, that was all filler, so you could find Acts 24 is what that was. <clears throat> Acts 24. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning, and then we're going to jump into what God would have us learn today. Acts chapter 24, starting in verse 1, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. It says, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tortellus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tortellus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The, Jew the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me, but this I confess to you. That according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia. They ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from, its, from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. 
When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can approach your word and ask that your spirit would enlighten our hearts. And that, Father, your word is sharper than any two-edged sword that it pierces to divide bone and marrow. And yet, Lord, we pray that your spirit would move, your word would be active, and that you would be on display. So, Holy Spirit, come. See you, Father, we pray in the name of your Son, by the power of your spirit. Amen. Now, this morning, I want to begin with just a simple question. How many of you have ever experienced a fight-or-flight moment? Okay, a few of us, right? So if you're not familiar, when something of extreme magnitude happens, right, your, your life is being threatened or something along those lines, there is a, a natural response. You're either going to fight it or you're going to flight it. And for me, one of the most vivid fight or flight moments happened when I was about 17, 18 years old. I had just become a believer. I was at a church retreat. We went from Woodstock, Georgia to rural Tennessee. So just imagine like Atlanta to Niles is kind of like the difference there, right? Or Cassopolis or somewhere, Dwajak, right? It's a massive difference in location. And we took about 100, 150 students from our youth group, and we went up to this campground in rural Tennessee, and, man, we just had a blast. Rented out a whole campground. We had this huge bonfire, about 100, 150 students just gathered around, having a great time. Darkness descends. The fire gets bigger. And, man, as we're there around the fire, surrounded on three sides by woods, one side by a massive open field, our youth pastor gets pulled to the side by the camp director. And you know those conversations that you watch? You can't hear what they're saying, but you know it's intense, right? Maybe you're familiar if you've ever watched your parents talk about you, right? So, like, it's one of those conversations, and, you know, and I'm, oh, my gosh, what is happening? Our youth pastor comes over and gathers everybody together. He says, hey, hey, guys, not to worry. Don't, don't be alarmed. Okay, like, that's like saying, let me give you the bad news first. Like, okay, don't be alarmed. But the director of the camp just came, and he said the police said, just arrived, and, and they wanted him to know that there was a breakout at the local jail, not too far from here. Don't worry. I'm sure we're going to be okay, but just everybody stay near the fire. <laughs> okay, like great idea, right? So immediately what happens, right? 100, 150 really good Christian kids. So you got like a pocket of girls praying for the salvation of the guy that broke out, like a pocket of girls, like praying for the jailer and make sure he's okay. And then the guys wanting to emulate the girls acting like they're praying, right? So all of this is happening around the fire. And as we begin to look, we notice there is one girl that's missing. Like, that's strange. So we're all looking, we're asking, hey, where's Shelly? Where's Shelly? Where's Shelly? I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And then it happened, right? To the woods to the north of us, this blood-curdling scream. Just erupts. And I'm standing there with my two best friends, Robbie and LJ, and we look, we're like, that's Shelly. And man, we take off running straight towards the woods. About halfway there, we hear another ominous sound. It's the sound of a chainsaw. And Robbie, me and other, I mean, we, we turn and we sprint right back to the fire. Forget Shelly. She can fend for herself, right? And, we're, and, and everyone, what's happening? What's going on? What's going on? I'm like, I don't know, I don't know. And the strangest thing happens. 
Rural Tennessee, jailbreak, chainsaw, scream. Weirdest thing. So the chainsaws to the woods to the north of us. The woods to our west, we hear an, another sound. It's a chainsaw starting up. The woods to our east, we hear another sound. It's a chainsaw starting up. And then in synchronous harmony, three men in black capes and scream masks walk out of the woods towards 100 to 150 teenagers around a fire, wielding chainsaws. Can I just tell you, everybody freaked out, right? And the only logical place to go was to the field to our south. And people stampede. I'm watching kids fall into the fire. I'm watching kids get tramped. And it is just like, it is chaos. And I freeze. And, and I don't move. I'm just standing next to the fire. Three men, chainsaws coming in. And I look down, and apparently somebody had left a crutch. They needed two. In the stampede, they only took one. So I... I'm standing there, and I got a crutch in my hands, and I'm watching scream-masked, cape-wearing, chainsaw-wielding men walk towards me, and I'm getting ready to swing for the fences, right? Crutch versus chainsaw, title bout, we'll see who wins. And as these guys pull up, man, they come up to the fire, and then they just stop their chainsaws and lift their masks, and it's just youth leaders. Like, this is horrible. Why would you ever think that our youth pastor, he didn't, he didn't really have a job much longer after that, right? I, I think what was happening in my mind, my mind was rapidly firing, right? It, it didn't make sense. It was an unreasonable thought to think that people who had just escaped from jail would then wear masks and a cape and find a chainsaw and one girl to abduct in the woods in rural Tennessee. It was an unreasonable thought. But for me, the only reasonable response was to grab a crutch and just wait, right? And what I love is, is there's this fight or flight response. I can choose to run or I can choose to defend myself. And for Paul in Acts 24, he's in a fight or flight moment. In Acts 24, what, what's happening to the apostle Paul is, isn't men with chainsaws approaching him? Because that wouldn't happen for a few thousand years, right? But what's happening to Paul here in Acts chapter 24, he's presented with a fight or flight moment. Tortullus with the Jewish leaders come to Caesarea and they levy the charges against him. And Paul has a response to make. And the only reasonable response for the Apostle Paul is to respond in defense of the faith. He doesn't flee. He doesn't make an excuse. He doesn't come up with 10 reasons why he's not guilty. That's not what he does. He stands his ground and he responds to unreasonable accusations with a reasonable defense. So for us today, as we unpack Acts chapter 24, what I hope we see is this one singular point. That despite circumstances and situations, our faith is reasonable. Despite situations and circumstances, our faith is reasonable. And just let that rest on you for a moment. In the midst of a chaotic, unreasonable world, in the midst of the situation that you may be facing right now, the most reasonable thing in your life, if you're a disciple of Jesus, is your faith.
Now, as we unpack Acts chapter 24, I want to make sure we're all on the same page, and I want us to all have the same definition of what reasonable means, because reasonable to you might not be reasonable to me. So reasonable simply means this, having sound judgment, fair and sensible, able to think or form judgments with a sound process. Realize that the faith we profess in Christ alone is reasonable. And that's what we're going to see today. We ready? You guys know by now. Let's go. Acts chapter 24, the curtain raises up and we are looking at the prequel to Judge Judy. It's Judge Felix and you hear this voice come in. It says, previously on Judge Felix. And what you see in Acts chapter 24 actually began in Acts chapter 22. So in order for us to get a grip on what is happening here in 24, we have to be reminded of what has happened thus far in the book of Acts. Remember that Paul, on his way to Jerusalem, is warned multiple times, you're going to be arrested, incarceration is coming, my friend. And he says, I'm fine with it. He puts his face towards Jerusalem, and he goes. He arrives in Jerusalem, the little fanfare. There is not a big party for Paul when he arrives. In fact, the apostles in Jerusalem have a little quarrel with him. They think he's anti-Jewish based on the Gentile mission that he's been fulfilling. So in order to appease the Jews, to show solidarity and unity within the church, Paul presents himself and takes a vow, a Nazarite vow. He cleanses himself. He goes and presents himself before the temple. He pays for others to do it as well. And he doesn't have any quarrel or any qualms there as he does that. And then it happens. Some rabble rousers, some Jews from Asia that knew who Paul was and had experienced the power of faith in Christ and what it would do to those who were Jewish. It would pull them away from their religion and give them life and hope in Jesus. So because of that, they stir up the crowd. Do you remember that? Right, Paul's rocky moment where they capture him and they beat the living snot out of him. And then Claudius Lysias seeing it happen in Acts 22 and 23 comes and rescues him. And Paul stands on the steps, bloodied and beaten, and addresses the crowd and gives his first defense. And chaos erupts. He's taken into the barracks, about to be examined, and he reveals he's a Roman citizen. So Lysias doesn't examine him, but the next day he takes him to the Sanhedrin, and chaos erupts. And then this awesome thing happens. In Acts chapter 23, verse 11, do you remember from last week? The Lord Jesus stands next to Paul and says, take courage. As you've testified about me here, you will testify about me in Rome. Man, what wind in your sails, right? Like, if that don't light your fire, your wood's wet, you know? Like, I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful thing. And he takes that courage, and the very next statement, his nephew comes and says, hey, Uncle Paul, thanks for the socks. They were really nice, but there's these guys 40 of them actually, and they've committed to murder you. So they're not going to eat or drink until they kill you. And Paul's like, you're welcome for the socks. Let's go talk about the murder, okay? So he takes the nephew and he takes him to Claudius Lysias. And under cover of night with 270 cavalry and infantrymen, they transport Paul to Caesarea. And as the voice fades and says, that was last week on Judge Felix, we're now brought into our scene today in Acts chapter 24. And our opening scene in the courtroom begins with an unreasonable accusation. Acts chapter 24, the first nine verses, do you see it there? 
the unreasonable accusation. Felix convenes courts, and this is what God's word says. It says, and after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tortellus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tortellus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made in, the na- in this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Just hit pause for a second and realize Tortellus is straight lying. Just lying. Felix did not bring reform. Felix did not bring peace. In fact, no other time in Judean history was there more chaos than under Felix. And up until this point in history, Felix, man, he was a bad mamma He hated the Jews. He would persecute the Jews. In fact, in a few years, you see it in our text at the very end, Felix is removed because of how he dealt with an uprising with the Jews. Felix wasn't a good guy. And the Jews hated him. But Tertullus is buttering him up. I used to do this as a kid, right? It'd be Friday night, TGIF. Remember that? No? Yeah? Okay. Boy Meets World, quality show, okay? And I'd just cuddle up next to my mom. You're so sweet. You are the best. Man, did you get your hair done today? No? Okay. Does dad know you did that? Okay. Right, mom, I love you. Can we just cuddle for just 35 more minutes? Let us finish, Boy Meets. I want to see what Topanga does, right? Just buttering them up, right? Maybe your kids do that to you. I don't know what's on TV now. It's not TGIF. That's gone. But, you know, the 90s is gone. Right? Or, or maybe, maybe you've done that to your wife. Sweetie, you are so wonderful. You are so good. Man, have a night out. Just go. Just, you know, you're trying to curry favor. That's exactly what Tertullus is doing. He's buttering up that Thanksgiving turkey, hoping that he will respond positively to the false, unreasonable accusations he's about to levy against Paul. I love it because Tortellus goes through and he gives a few accusations. I don't know if you remember or see it in our text. He first claims that Paul is a plague. I love that. Literally a pest. Something that you would stomp on and then look at the underneath side of your shoe and go, man, that was gross. And that's what Paul is to the Jews. Not only that, but he is an insurrectionist. Paul stirs up riots among the Jews, not only in Jerusalem, but throughout the whole world. He's also a ringleader of a sect called the Nazarene. So he is leading in Christianity, and Christianity is in competition against the empire. Felix, you need to know that. Then the last charge he levies against Paul is that Paul defiled the temple. Now here's the deal. In this moment in Acts chapter 24, what's on trial isn't just Paul. What's on trial is the entire breadth of the church. Because... If Paul is indeed guilty, then the guilty charge isn't just levied against him, it's levied against all who follow Christ. Because if this sect of the Nazarenes is truly in competition to the empire, then there's a problem. If this sect of the Nazarenes is okay with stirring up riots and stirring up strife and stirring up trouble, then this is a problem for the empire. If this sect of the Nazarenes declares that there is another God and it's not Caesar, then this is an issue. And if Paul is found guilty, not only is he found guilty, but every follower of Jesus is, and the empire will hunt them faster than an inquisitor does a Jedi. There is a lot at stake here. And the unreasonable accusations 
And in Tertullus, what we see is a manifestation, a manifestation of something that's very present and active in our world today. You and I, we may never go on Judge Felix. We may never appear before a governor or a tribunal, but realize that the spirit that's in Tertullus is the same spirit that's in our world today, one that wants to cast blame, cast accusations, cast charges against you as a follower of Jesus. In Tertullus, we see something that is not dead in our world today. So let me ask you, in the midst of your workplace, in the midst of your school, in the midst of your family, if there are unjust accusations being levied against you, how will you respond as a follower of Jesus? Because this world isn't too far from the first century world that Paul's in. Chaos is reigning. Confusion is there. Unreasonable accusations are accepted as truth. And because of that, Paul, because of that, followers of the way, because of that, disciples at Gospel City, what response will you have? I love Paul's response. We go from unreasonable accusations to a reasonable defense. Notice Paul's response here in verses 10 and following. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Paul's not trying to butter up Felix. Paul's just stating fact. Felix, you've been here for a long time. You will make a reasonable accusation. You will see the reasonableness of my faith and defense. I'm glad to present it to you. Then Paul goes through and he rebuffs each and every charge that Tertullus has placed against him. The charge of being an insurrectionist? Man, how could I do that? I, I was just in Jerusalem 12 days. Like, that's not enough to get a soccer team together, let alone a res or an insurrection. That's, I wasn't doing that. Defiling the temple? No, 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 that's not what I was doing. I had presented myself clean and pure. I had just gotten done with the Nazarite vow. I was coming to the temple with purity. I wasn't coming to the temple to, to defile it. But it's interesting that when it comes to the charge of being a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarene, followers of Jesus, Paul doesn't make an excuse. He doesn't rebuff it. He admits to it. Do you see it there in our text? Acts chapter 24, verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. I love Paul. He's so smart. He turns the tables on the Jewish leaders in this moment. Standing before Felix, standing before Tertullus, standing before Ananias and the elders from Jerusalem, he says, hey, based upon the law and the prophets, the words that they affirm, I am a follower of the way. And I believe in the hope that God gives. I believe in a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. See what Paul does in this moment? He goes into a mini sermon. He takes the opportunity standing before the governor, the procurator of Judea, and says, yes, I am a follower of the way. Yes, 
I believe in God, yes. I believe everything that is written in the law and the prophets, yes. I believe that there is a greater hope, yes. I believe there will be a resurrection, by the way, Felix, of the just and the unjust. It's beautiful. Paul takes the opportunity to prime the gospel pump of Felix. He takes the opportunity to flip the script and put the, the Sanhedrin, Ananias, and the Jews on trial. He admits to, yes, I, I am a follower of the way. That is what I do. But notice how he progresses. Verse 17, now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Again, in Roman law, the accusers needed to be present at the trial. And do you notice who's missing here in Caesarea? It's the Jews from Asia who stirred up the riot. They're not there. It's the Jews from Asia who caused the tumult. They're not there. Tertullus is, and so are the leaders, but the ones who actually made the accusation are gone because they know that there's no merit, there's no truth to what they're accusing Paul of. It's an unreasonable accusation, and Paul's defense is a reasonable defense to the faith that he has. It's beautiful. Paul goes on through the rest of this text through verse 27, and he presents to Felix, he presents to him the reasonable faith that he has. I love in verse 22, there's a beautiful thing, verses 22 through 24, Felix, seeing what is happening, makes a political move. Felix wasn't born yesterday. He's not an idiot. He may be ruthless and horrific, but he's also a wise and cunning political opponent. He sees what's happening and he knows that Paul, a Roman citizen, is innocent, but he also knows that should he say Paul's innocent, that there will be issues with those in Jerusalem and there will be riots and there will be strife. So what does he do? I love it. Verse 22, or verse, verse 22, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. That's, that's kicking the can down the road. That's admitting that there's innocence, but not willing to make that declaration. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Paul is put in the praetorium, posh, house arrest, and allowing and allowed to have friends and family come tend to his needs. I love it, though, because the apostle Paul doesn't really rest too well. The Apostle Paul takes every moment, every opportunity to put Christ on display. So he goes from the unreasonable accusations of Tortellus, Judge Felix, season one, episode one. It doesn't make much sense. He presents his reasonable defense. He presents why he isn't those things, and he defends himself accurately and astutely, and then he comes to presenting the faith that he has believed. It is a reasonable faith that makes sense in a chaotic world. And here in our text, we're introduced to another character in our story. Notice Acts 24, verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. What a name. I call her Syl for short. 
or Drew. I'm probably not Drew. I probably wouldn't do that. That's not good. So there's our man Felix and his wife, Syl, who is Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So at this point in season one, episode one of Judge Felix, there's a commercial break. And the commercial break, we pull back and we get the backstory of Felix and Drusilla. How many of you were fans of Keeping Up with the Kardashians? You wouldn't raise your hand in church, okay? <laughs> that was a membership test is what that was. I'm going to assume that none of you know that show, okay? It's a good thing. It's a good thing. But what we see here is not just the prequel to Judge Judy. We see the prequel to Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Felix and Drusilla, they are a hot mess. Here's, here's what you need to know about Felix. Felix was born a slave, and he earns his freedom, and his big bro becomes a senator and buddy-buddy with Caesar. So because of that, he gets this procuratorship, this governorship there in Judea. It was said of Felix that he ruled like a king with the heart of a slave. I mean, Felix was ruthless. He was a bad guy. Nobody wanted to be around him. Felix, by the time we are introduced to Drusilla, is on his third marriage. And Drusilla, man, is she a piece of work. Drusilla, at this point in Acts 24, at the oldest is 20, at the youngest is 15, and she's already been wooed away by Felix from her first husband, a Syrian governor, to come and marry him. So she divorces him and comes to where she thinks the grass is greener, there in Caesarea, and is married to Felix. Here's what you need to know about Drusilla, though. She's from the line of the Agrippas. So this is keeping up with the Agrippas, okay? Do you remember them? The old Herod Agrippa? We introduced to him in the Gospel of Luke. He was the Herod that decided that his ruling reign was in trouble, so he gathers all of the male babies under two and slaughters them. Yeah, that's her grandpa. Do you remember the other Herod who's having a great dinner party? And John the Baptist had proclaimed that, hey, it's not right that you marry your brother's sister. That's a bad idea. In the middle of the dinner party, he says, you know what? I'm so attracted to my niece that whatever you say up to half my kingdom, I'll give you. And her wicked mother says, ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And here comes John the Baptist's head in the middle of a dinner party. Not only that, do you remember the Agrippas who earlier in Acts received praise and acclamation? The people in Caesarea said, you are a God. And God said, no, 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 no. There's only one of those and it's me. And in the book of Acts, I believe it's chapter 10, it's said of Herod Agrippa as he sat on the throne that God struck him and he was eaten by worms. And that's, that's Drew's family line. Like, Syl's not looking too hot in this moment, okay? So there's this commercial break. We learn all about Felix and Drusilla, and that's important for us because what's about to happen here in Acts chapter 24, what's about to happen is Paul's going to present the reasonableness of faith. And notice what he says in verse 24 and 25. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him. So Paul has this moment to address the man that holds his freedom in his hands. And notice the content of what Paul's going to address him at. And he heard him and he proclaimed to him his unjust detainment. Mm -mm. He heard him, he came before Felix and Drusilla and he talked about how the Jews and the Christians in the empire were being treated unfairly. No, sir. 
He sits with Felix and Drusilla, and they talk about the weather and the latest Athenian games. No. Paul, given the opportunity to address the man that holds his freedom in his hands, addresses him about faith in Christ Jesus. Church, just let that rest on you for a moment. How singularly focused Paul was. I don't care if I'm addressing a governor or a beggar on the street. Your base need is the same, and it's faith in Christ Jesus. Given an opportunity, he takes the opportunity and clearly communicates faith in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 25. And as he reasoned, I love that word reasoned, by the way. It's a word that Paul has used all throughout the book of Acts. He's reasoned with the Jews in Thessalonica. He's reasoned with the Greeks in Athens. He's reasoned with the Bereans and the Lyconians. And he has reasoned, he has reasoned, he has reasoned. That word reasoned there means to take a closer look, to glean or to draw out. So Paul, given the opportunity to address Felix and Drusilla, reasons with them. And he presents our reasonable faith. Notice the content of his message. He reasons with them about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Felix, who should have been a righteous judge, needed to hear about God's righteousness. Felix, who if he saw it, he took it, needed to know about self-control. And Felix, who sat pompous and proud on the judgment seat in Caesarea, needed to know that there is a righteous, self-controlled, ultimate judge who will met out to you your just judgment, Felix. Remember, back in verse 14, there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. And Felix, Sil, you need to know it's coming. Paul presents the gospel to Felix and Drusilla. He tells them about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. Oh, church, would you hear that message today? Would you hear the message that there is a righteous God who desires to be reconciled to you? Because you, in your sin, have been irreconcilable to God. And the only way to be brought back in right relationship to him, Felix, Drusilla, you today, is through faith in Christ Jesus. And the natural outpouring of righteousness, of faith in Christ, is a self-control that's given to you by the power of the Holy Spirit so that when the judgment to come happens, you stand before the just, beautiful, righteous judge, Jesus Christ, and you are judged worthy. Not because of what you've done, but because of your faith in him and him alone. Felix and Drusilla needed that message, and so do you. Oh, church, would our hearts not be like Felix's heart? Would our hearts not be like Drusilla's heart? Notice in verse 25, Felix responds. He's alarmed. I love that word, alarmed. He is, man, his knees are clacking. That guy is so afraid. Paul, the prisoner, 
Felix, the governor, the judge, all of a sudden the roles are reversed because of the beauty and message of the gospel. Felix responds and says, hey, you can, you can kind of, we're going to have a rest for a second. Like, I'll call you when it's convenient. I love it because in Acts 24, verses 24 and 25, we get a picture, we get a glimpse of a theology of salvation. Do you see it? A theology of salvation. No, church, that when we talk about salvation, there are three primary things that must take place. The first, God must draw. God must draw. Jesus addresses this in the Gospel of John. He says, no one comes to me except the Father. Draw him. There has to be a move of God drawing people to faith in Christ. But here's the crazy thing. The second aspect of salvation, the theology of salvation, is that, man, disciples must share. I'm not God. And that's a good thing, and neither are you. I have no idea who God is drawing. Matthew 28 would declare to us that we should go into all the world proclaiming the message of redemption, proclaiming the gospel, teaching them to observe these things, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's an aspect of salvation God draws, but disciples must share. You and I, we are God's plan A for the redemption of the world. We must share. I don't know who God's drawing, and neither do you, but I do know if I never open my mouth, then they will never hear. There's a third component of a theology of salvation. Man must respond. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him and believed in this name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Man, given the opportunity, man must respond. God draws, yes. Disciples. It's you and I, if we have faith in Jesus, as a family here at Gospel City, we must share. But I'm not responsible for your response. I'm responsible to share. If God's drawing you, if I'm sharing, then I pray that you would repent and come to faith in Christ Jesus. You see that here in Acts 24, verses 24 and 25. Felix says, hold up. Another commercial break, Paul. Thanks for sharing. I'll call you when it's convenient. And history records that there is never a convenient time for Felix. By the end of the chapter, Felix is gone. Porcius Festus is there. History records that Drusilla, with her son, takes a winter holiday on the island of Pompeii right as Vesuvius explodes. History never records her coming to know the Lord either. Hear me. If we put off to tomorrow the invitation of today, tomorrow might not ever come. Today is the day of salvation. Is the Lord drawing you today? Is your heart drawn by him in this very moment? In the blink of an eye, we can respond in faith to Christ, but also in the blink of an eye, this world could end. There's an urgency in the sharing of the beauty of the gospel message. God draws you, if you're a disciple, you must share. And let God have the result. Man must respond, but we as a family of disciples 
should be burdened with the urgency to proclaim the gospel with boldness. Paul, given the opportunity before Felix and Trusilla, presents the reasonableness, the fair, sensible nature of his faith in Christ. Notice verses 26 and 27. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Paul's given a two-year sabbatical in the Praetorium at Caesarea. And he conversed with Felix and Drusilla often. And yet, the reasonable faith that he gave was never responded to in kind. So church, as we land the plane here, I want to simply ask this final question of us. What does a reasonable explanation of faith look like in your life? When we say our faith is reasonable, what does it look like in the life of a disciple today? I would present to you four things that reasonable faith in your life and mine looks like today. The first thing that reasonable, reasonable faith looks like is that it proclaims the whole message of the Bible. Do you know what we believe about the Bible? Like, do you have a reasonable understanding of what we believe about the Bible? Like, like we believe that God is eternally existent, wasn't created from eternity past, coexisted with himself in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that God simply spoke and the world was created. We believe that God breathed life into Adam and Eve, formed and fashioned them in his image. We believe that he sent a worldwide flood. We believe that he parted the Red Sea. We believe that he fed over a million people with manna and quail in the wilderness. We believe that he spoke through the prophets of old. We believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life so that he could be the sacrificial lamb dying on behalf of your sins and mine. We believe that he was buried and three days later he resurrected. We believe in Acts chapter one that he ascended to the right hand of God the Father in heaven where he's making intercession for you and he's waiting to come back in the way he left to judge the earth. That's what we believe about the Bible. We believe the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God in its original writings given to us for life and godliness. Do you believe the message of the Bible? Reasonable faith in the life of a disciple, man, it proclaims the whole message of the Bible. Not only that, number two, it reveals the idols of your heart. Reasonable faith in the life of a disciple reveals the idols of your heart. Paul struck it hard with Felix and Drusilla. Righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. All of those were sitting on the throne of their hearts. And look at me. The only thing that's worthy to sit on the throne of your heart is Jesus. Anything else is an idol. The message of the Bible destroys the idols of our heart. Number three, reasonable faith in the life of a disciple. It invites a response. It invites a response. Again, today is the day. This moment is the moment. And faithful family of Gospel City, if you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and you believed it for years, then there still is a response that you must make each and every day. You must still proclaim to yourself the beauty of the message of Scripture. 
You must seek and actively root out the idols of your heart. You are an idol factory churning out excuses, churning out false gods over and over again. And you must respond daily to the gospel of Jesus Christ, established disciple of Gospel City. But hear me, if you've never repented and come to faith in Jesus, I invite you today to respond. The message of the gospel is clear. You have idols in your heart. Would you respond? Number four, reasonable faith in the life of a disciple secures our eternity. I love what Jesus says. He says, you're in my hand and my hand's in the Father's hand. You have faith in me, praise God. Your eternity is secure. There's nothing that can remove it. Church, that's what reasonable faith in the life of a disciple looks like. So if you're part of our family, I want to end by making these four questions to you. Are you living as if you actually believe that your faith is reasonable? Are you living as if you actually believe your faith is reasonable? Are you able to proclaim the whole message of the Bible? Have the idols of your heart been revealed and dismantled? And are you still responding daily to the wonders of the gospel? I hope as we gather together in small groups this week, as we gather together in coffee shops, as we gather together at Martin's or Meyer or wherever you might gather, I hope you ask those four questions. Our faith is reasonable. It is not foolish. It is not fiction. It is fact. And our faith is what draws us to one another in unity and is what brings us back to the beauty of Christ. Our faith has been tested over millennia and it has its roots and foundations in the God of the universe. Oh, church, would we embody that reasonable faith this week, given every opportunity, every chance, every moment to proclaim it? Let me pray for us and then let's sing this beautiful hymn together. Father, thank you that you have ordered your word in such a way as to show us the reasonableness of it. That you are on display, that you are the centerpiece of the story that regardless of unjust, unreasonable accusations, we have a reasonable defense founded upon our reasonable faith, that our faith is fair and sensible and it is right. So Father, today, this morning, for those that have yet to come to faith in Christ, who are standing on the precipice like Felix and Drusilla did, Lord, may they not step back in fear, but Lord, may they step forward in faith in you. Father, unite our hearts together like never before.